Good morning. I'd like to invite you all to take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Matthew. We'll be reading in just a, a few short minutes uh, from Matthew chapter 22. I'd just like to say as you're doing that, uh, how encouraged it is to see each and every one of you here, especially those of you visiting with us. It is always a great uh, encouragement to, to have uh, visitors come and, and choose to spend this time worshiping God with us here together. Uh, if you have not had the opportunity to do so already, we encourage you to fill out a visitor card with your information and uh, also let us get to know you a little bit more after services are over. I know before services things can be busy, but uh, we, we truly would like to get to know each of you better. <clears throat> In Matthew 22, Jesus is continuing a, a series of teaching that he started when he was questioned by the religious leaders uh, of that day. This is during the last week of his life. And in chapter 21, he started answering some of their questions with parables. And we've looked at those two parables. Uh, this will be the third and final parable in this series of teachings that he's given uh, in response to their challenges. The first one, seen in Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32, is the parable of the two sons, in which Jesus tells a story of a, a, a man who owns a vineyard and he sends his two sons out to work the vineyard. One saying, yeah, I'll go work the vineyard, but never does. The other one saying, no, I'm not going to do that work, but later has a change of heart and repents and does the work his father commanded. He likens Israel to that first son that's claiming to do the work of God and yet failing to do so. He then goes into another parable about the wicked vine dressers. Again, you'll see a connection there, this, this idea of a vineyard. And he talks about these vine dressers who are hired by the master to tend the land and whenever he sends uh, servants to come and to receive the fruit of that land, they, they stone them and they mistreat them and kill them. And even his son is sent and he says, that surely they'll respect my son. And he sends his son and they kill the son as well. And again, he likens Israel to these wicked vine dressers who had stoned and, and, and not heeded the words of the prophets and even soon were about to destroy the, the very Son of God on the cross. And we see a connection between these. Um, but this next one, uh, in Matthew 22, we'll be reading about the parable of the wedding feast, the great banquet. There's a shift. He's been talking about a vineyard. He's been talking about uh, working in a vineyard. And now he's going to be talking about this great wedding ceremony that's about to take place. Uh, and, and I hope that all of this causes us to, to stop and to ponder on what Jesus is actually saying here. Why is He using the imagery that He's using and what is it He's trying to reveal? Because ultimately what He's done so far, he's, so far He said you've rejected God whenever you, you had a responsibility to work for Him as a son of God. You rejected Him. You rejected God when you had a responsibility to work for Him as a hired laborer of God. He's saying on all these different relationships, you have a responsibility to owe something to God, and you reject it over and over again. But now, He's going to paint this picture of how you've rejected God when you have a responsibility to Him because of His graciousness and because of His kindness. On three different levels, you have rejected and you have turned away from God. And it's becoming more and more clear that, that their rejection uh, in each one of these parables is being highlighted. Uh, and, and so I hope that as we get into this, as we start to read, we really ponder the, the imagery that Jesus is using and the reason why He picks these different symbols to represent Israel. So let's just begin by reading chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 1. Um, 
and look at the parable that Jesus is, is using to teach at this time. Uh, and Jesus answered, spoke to them again by parable, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Now I want to stop right there before we go any further. Verse 1 and 2, we see the difference. He's begun talking about a, a vineyard and a vineyard, and now all of a sudden he shifts to a, a wedding. That seems quite odd to me. He, he is carrying over and, and teaching heavily about this vineyard, and all of a sudden he says, now let me talk to you about a wedding. What on earth does that have to do with anything? Why use the symbolism of a, of a wedding? Why pull that imagery into his teaching at this time? And I hope that when we read things like this, and when things kind of seem a little confusing to us, that it causes us not to say, well, I can't understand it. Nobody can understand it. Shut the book. That's for somebody else. That's not for me. No. It causes us to dig in. causes us to look a little bit deeper. In Isaiah 25, that's where I first want to draw our minds back to. Isaiah 25, the prophet Isaiah does something very similar to Jesus here. He uses a wedding banquet to illustrate a lesson to the Israelites in that day. <clears throat> In the first five verses of Isaiah 25, he spends all of his time talking about what God has done. He really is setting God up on a pedestal. Look at the amazing things he has done. God has been faithful. He has done wonderful things. He has done terrible things in his wrath upon his enemies. He has comforted the poor and the needy. Just over this, this huge picture of look at the amazing God that we serve. But then listen in verse 6. And see if this language does not sound similar. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people He will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him and we will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest and Moab shall be trampled down under Him as straw is trampled down at, for the refuse heap. And He will spread out His hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim and He will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands, the fortress of the high fort of your walls. He will bring down, lay, lay low and bring to the ground to the dust. This is a picture in this, in, in this setting. This is a picture of salvation. The Jews recognize this. When he talks about this idea of, of coming to the mountain and coming to, to have themselves separated from the covering that had cast over them, separated from the things that, the, the, the things that they were dealing with, the oppression that they were dealing with that was thrown upon them like a, like a blanket. That all of this is being removed. But there's words in there that we picture as well of salvation. Salvation like there will be no more tears. Death will be swallowed up forever. We hear that language, we recognize maybe better than they did having, having hindsight now that this is the same imagery that John is going to use in Revelation describing heaven. That this idea of this perfect peace with God and when we go over there to, to Revelation, one of the things that we see as he describes that perfect peace with God in Revelation 19, 
is this picture of a wedding banquet. In Revelation 19, we see the heavenly multitude celebrating and rejoicing over the defeat of Babylon. And in the context of the book of Revelation, Babylon represents Rome and the oppression that Rome was putting upon the, the Christians of that day. But in a broader context of its, of its imagery, it represents the forces of Satan. It represents his power, his influence in the world. And it is being defeated it is being defeated and the picture is coming of final victory. Not a, not a little battle or a skirmish one here and there, but a final ending of this great war. And what is everyone ready for at the end of this battle? Well, if you look in verse 6, he says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia! For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. I hope these two passages, when we, when we begin to look and link Old Testament to New Testament and realize what Jesus said when He said, I came not to destroy the law, to fulfill it, He's making connections. He's drawing Old Testament imagery. Whenever he talks about the wedding banquet, he's drawing their minds to a New Testament fulfillment of these Old Testament images. And as he talks about the wedding banquet here, he's talking about salvation. This is an invitation to, to the feast of salvation for all mankind is what he's talking about in this picture, this invitation that has been sent out to those uh, as he describes the kingdom of heaven. And let's pick back up again at verse 3 and continue to see what he says moving forward. And sent, uh, after the invitation was, was, uh, was sent out uh, for the certain king had arranged a marriage for his son, verse 3, he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. <clears throat> again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their own ways, one to their own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. So again, we see in this next section, verses 3 through 6, a continuation of some of the same imagery that we've seen in the first two parables. This, this rejection, but the rejection is treated a little bit differently. Some of them reject Him with an attitude of indifference. They treated it with, they, they kind of mock it. We've got other things to do. We've got a farm to, to, to look at. We've got work to do. There's other things that are on our minds rather than coming to this invitation, inv invited feast that we've, this feast that we've been invited to. The other ones have an idea of rebellion. We know about the feast. We don't want to go to it. In fact, we're going to kill the people that invited us to come to it. Again, I hope we see a picture from the Old Testament start to, to, to crop up in our minds. An invitation had been given to ancient Israel. An invitation to a feast. A feast land. They are invited to go into the land of Canaan. God says, I've given it to you. Go in and take it. It's yours. And then he says, let me describe the land for you. So they send in the spies um, to, to see the land and, and to come back and bring the report of what the land looks like. He wants them to know what they're coming to. And what do they come back and say? They come back and say, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land with grape clusters that are so big it takes two men to carry them. Think about what he's describing. 
this great amount of food, this great amount of luxurious, you know, the, 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 the grapes and the milk and the honey. This is a feast. It's a feast land. It's a land where everything is good. There's great places for our crops to grow. There's great places for our livestock to grow. It couldn't be better for us. You have been invited to the feast land. And what did Israel do? They refused. They refused to go in. They allowed fear. They allowed uh, other things to enter their mind rather than focusing on God, focusing on what He had the ability to do and entering into their feast land. And once again, Jesus is saying, you all are just like those Israelites standing at the border of Jordan. The feast land is in front of you. You're invited to come to it and you're not going in. You're not going in because of, of, of all sorts of different problems like indifference and rebellion. He even says the servants, they sent and they tried to persuade these people. Please come. They, they, it's almost like they were begging them. Look at what's been done. Look at the cattle and look at, at all the things that He has done to make this feast excellent. Please come. And this is very similar to the prophets who over and over again went and said, look at what God is doing for you. Look at where He has brought you from. Look at what's around you and how it could be better if you were serving God. And once again, we see people who were indifferent and people who were rebelled. We saw kings that ignored the prophets and didn't care what they said because look at us. We've got what we want. We've got the, the food that we want. We've got the riches that we want. And when things got bad and they realized, no, we don't have everything we want, and the prophets were still saying, look, this is the reason why, because of your sin, because of your chasing after other things, they said, I'll tell you what, I don't like hearing this from you, and I'll shut you up. And they killed the prophets. And as this was true in ancient Israel, this is also true now in Jesus' day. Israel now has the greatest prophet of all. The prophet that they've been looking for since the time of Moses. The coming of this great prophet with the Word of God in his mouth. Then he's telling them, come to the kingdom. The feast is ready for you. The marriage of the king's son is, is about to commence and you need to come to that. And again, we're remembering this is a picture of salvation that he's telling them. Salvation has arrived and they were indifferent. And some decided to rebel. And some decided to put him to death and to put many of his followers to death. And we see the reaction to that in verses 7 through 10 of the next section, the next section of the parable. It says, But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found both good, bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so we see prophecy now taking place. In verse 7, he says the, the king is furious and he murders. He, he goes out and he kills those who were invited that refused to come, that rebelled against him, and he burned their city down. And this is prophetic language what's actually going to happen in the next uh, 40 years or so. We're going to see in 70 A.D. these exact things happen. The Jews, many Jews are killed by the hands of Rome and they destroy Jerusalem, tearing the temple to the ground, burning the city. It is almost word for word what Jesus is prophesying is going to happen right now in His parable. But the prophecy doesn't just end with God got mad and destroyed everything. That's Noah's day. That's looking back. God saw everything and He said, that's it, I'm wiping it all out. But He saved one family. 
Again, God looks at it this time and He says, that's it, I've got mad, but I'm not just wiping everything out. I'm wiping out the ones who offend. I'm wiping out the ones who, through indifference and through rebellion, have said, we don't want to have a part of this. But I'm opening the invitation. He is extending it. This is a prophetic view still of, of this idea that the invitation is being opened from not just the Jews, but into all the world. And to this, to this end... We should, we should praise and we should rejoice for this prophecy because what that means now is that people like me and people like you have access to the kingdom. We can come to the feast. He says go into the highways and it's not just the people who at one time were deemed worthy like the Israelites. They were the chosen people of God. These are the people worthy for the invitation. He says now it's to everyone. Good and bad, everyone is welcome. Come to my feast. And they come, and the, 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 the hall is filled with guests. And, and so many people in the world say, let's stop reading right there because that's a happy ending. And that's where I want this story to end, with God's wedding ceremony filled with every people from the world, both good and bad, and it's just a beautiful celebration. But Jesus doesn't end there. He continues on. He continues on in verse 11. It says, But when the king came, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Seems to be kind of a, a weird picture that's being played of this king, isn't it? He invited these guys to come. They didn't come. So he said, all right, bring everybody. And so, so everybody else came. And then he found a guy that wasn't just, he just didn't have on the right clothes. So he said, you, you're out of here. I don't want you in my wedding hall. Again, this can be kind of a tough thing for us to read. And maybe we look at that and we say, I just don't know. I'm going to close it. That's for somebody else. But again, I challenge you. Let's, let's dig in a little bit. What's going on here? We have to remember Several things when we study God's Word. One, and probably uh, chief of, of, of many of the rules to Bible study, is we have to remember it wasn't written to us first. It was written to a different audience. It was written at a different time and a different culture. And there are different customary practices that are being used as teaching tools here. Not that they are bound as something that is right or wrong, but they are used to paint a picture. One of the customs of the day, when royal weddings, when royal ceremonies came, Many of the people coming to these ceremonies did not, were not able to, to dress and wear something appropriate for that situation. Maybe they didn't have it. Maybe they didn't have a means even of getting it. And so it was not uncommon for the dignitary, the royal that is having, holding the celebration, to say, you come, I will provide you with something to wear. And so he's offering them something to wear maybe as they come in. And so you can kind of see now the king comes and he said, I've provided you clothes for this royal celebration. And this guy here, he decided he's not going to wear it. How did you get in here without wearing the clothes that I provided you for this, this special circumstance? It's almost a, a slap in the face. Say, no, I just didn't want to wear that. I didn't want to wear what you gave me. It was showing a lack of respect and showing a lack of appreciation in, in that customary cultural setting. And what we see in this picture is there was no excuse that could be given. 
He couldn't say, well, I liked what I had better. Or, well, the, you know, you, the, the, the clothes that you were giving me, they weren't quite as good as, as something else. There was no excuse. He was speechless. There's no response to this accusation. And the king's reaction is a reaction of fury. And so what we see then is that this insult has serious consequences on the one that gives it. In fact, Jesus concludes this section, and really you can see a conclusion of not only the entire parable, but maybe everything that Jesus is trying to get the, the leaders of that day to see, and that is the invitation of God that has been extended to many, only a few are owing to actually receive and be chosen from that invitation. The Israelites needed to see this maybe better than anyone. We need to see this today, especially, that many are invited, but only a few are going to be chosen. And that's not because, that's not because the, the king in this situation is very picky. It's because the attitude and the hearts of the people that are coming to the feast. And so let's apply this then. Let's, let's take this parable, and we've seen it uh, the, the way that... that what Jesus has said, and we've dug in a little bit. Let's see how this can apply to our lives today and ask the question that we put up at the beginning. Will we spurn the invitation? Will we ignore? Will we reject? Will we make light of? Will we not treat with respect the invitation that God has given to all mankind, extended to the world, come to the wedding feast of my son and his bride? Many people today... So many people today will reject that call due to a lack of knowledge of God. And that lack of knowledge of God is due to a lack of interest. Maybe life gets in the way. I started, I started a family. I started raising kids. You know, when the kids get a little bit older, then maybe we'll do this church thing. I started school. Maybe when we get out of school, we'll do this, this church thing. Something continually seems to be getting in the way. One of the big ones for so many people in the world is a job. I've got work to do and it pulls me away. And I, I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Maybe sometime when everything is convenient, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. But right now, there are things like family and hobbies and, and life that has just gotten in the way. And I want you to think of the words of Acts chapter 14 when Paul told the Lystrian people, people who they certainly had a misunderstanding of God. They didn't know who God is. They knew who Zeus was. They knew who Hermes was. And they said, we know these gods, and they're actually trying to praise Paul and Barnabas as, uh, as these gods. And think about what Paul says to them. It's very interesting, the thing that he says, because a people with a lack of indifference, they must not know who God is and what He's done. So listen to what he says, starting in, in uh, verse 15, kind of the latter part of verse 15, Acts chapter 14, 15. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, He let all nations go their own way, yet He has not left Himself without testimony. He has shown His kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. He is saying God is making Himself known to you and you have no right not to know who He is. There will be no excuse for indifference. There will be no excuse for, well, I thought I would get around to knowing more about God someday. 
He says, no, look at what God's done. He is forcing you to open your eyes and see. And sometimes that forcement causes others to do the same thing that the Israelites were guilty of doing. And that's ignoring and spurning the invitation out of rebellion. And in Romans chapter 2, think about what Paul says there to the Romans in verse 4. He says, do you, not, do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness? Now we just read Acts chapter 14 and what we saw was God's kindness that is not just spread out over the Lystrian people, it's spread out over the whole world. And now he's asking the Romans, do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? When we see that, that should cause us to make a change in our lives. That could cause us to have hearts that yearn for God. He says, but because of your stubbornness, And your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When His righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. What we're seeing in Paul's teaching and what is found to be true throughout time is that many people will know full well the goodness, the kindness of God, and they'll despise the grace that He has shown them. And they'll be storing up for themselves wrath. So what we learn then is all should respond. Everyone should respond to the invitation of the Father. There's no excuse for indifference. There's no excuse for rebellion. And that seems to be a pretty easy concept for us to grasp. Partially, that's the reason why we're here today. Because we know who God is. And we know there's no excuse for me not to care. There's no excuse for me to fight against the God of all creation. But we also learn that while all should respond to the Father, there is a great importance in the proper attire that we put on. I'm not talking about the clothes that we wear, although maybe that would somehow line up into this, but it goes so much deeper than, than what we put on the outside of our body. When we read about the attire that gets this guy cast out, it's not so much that he was wearing the wrong clothes, it's that he was clothed with the wrong heart. This is a problem going all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God made man and God made man good. And He showed man this is what is right and this is what you will do. And man said, no, I want to choose for myself what is right. And I want to choose for myself what is wrong. And they severed the relationship with God. And God has repeatedly told them throughout, He has told us throughout history, you have a problem. And the problem is your heart. Throughout the prophets, what are the prophets saying? God is going to come and He's not going to restore a kingdom. He's going to restore the hearts of the people. And that will make up the kingdom. Over and over again, this idea and this terminology is all pointing to the heart. And so when we see that we should have the proper attire, it's what is our heart clothed with? What are we clothing our heart with? And what kind of heart do we have? And there are many in the world that are going to be like this man that is cast out of the wedding hall. Those who try to find their own righteousness. 
Those who think by the good that I do, the things that I do, that is going to make, make me right in the sight of God by filling my life with good deeds. If I do that, then God has to recognize me as a righteous person and accept me. Others, they, they go just the opposite. And they say, it's not about the good that I do. It's about believing in God. And I know that if I just believe in Him enough, it doesn't matter if I ever turn away from my sinful ways. It doesn't matter if I repent. It doesn't matter if I obey Him. I just have to have faith that He will do it. Both of these illustrate a problem with heart. Without having the proper attire on our hearts. So what kind of apparel does God give us? If we are these characters, if we are these people that are at the wedding feast and God is saying, I'm looking at the attire that you're wearing, what is the proper attire? The first thing that I want us to think about and the preeminent one is seen in Galatians 3, 26 through 27. Galatians 3, 20, uh, 26 through 27. There, listen to what Paul says. He says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now he's going to describe what that means. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The proper attire begins with putting on Christ. Now so many times in the world people hear the teaching on this, that, oh, the church of Christ, that's all they believe in is baptism. You've got to get wet and somehow that magically transforms you into a right person. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's talking to people who are already saved Christians and he's reminding them, do you know what made you a son of God? It began when you submitted yourself to Him as a king. How do you do that? You do that by entering into this relationship through him, with Him through baptism. It's through baptism that we, that we put on the clean the robe of Christ. And that clean robe, when you see in Revelation, we're, we're, we're clothing ourselves in Christ. Read through the book of Revelation and notice what you find every time you read about Christ. In some way or another, whether it be His clothes are dipped in it or He's described as it, it's the blood of the Lamb. Over and over again, John is showing us in that symbolism, I saw Christ, I saw Him, and He still has the blood of His sacrifice. And so if we're putting on Christ, what are we putting on? We're putting on clean robes made clean with the blood of the Lamb. In other passages, like in Colossians 2, we find that being put into, baptized into Christ, putting on Christ, is how we receive the circumcision of the heart. Again, going back from the beginning, what's been the problem? It's been a hard heart and God surgically is molding that heart into a good and honest heart. And that begins by being connected with Christ. And we are connected with Him and receive forgiveness of our sins through baptism. One of the most important things that we put on begins with putting on Christ in baptism. But we're also to put on a new man. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 14. We read there, after, this is after he's talked about the benefit of baptism, is that you, you have this sign of the covenant. Remember, we're under a new covenant with Christ, and there was a sign of the covenant under Abraham and the old covenant that they were to be circumcised on the eighth day. This was to show that they were in this covenant with God. We are likewise having, receiving a sign of the covenant in our own lives, being baptized into Christ. But also, he doesn't just end it there and say, and then once you have the sign, everything's good and you just go on with your life. No, he says in chapter 3, 
Verse 5, Therefore put to death your members, which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him, where, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against anyone, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. We're finding is if we're going to stand before God and we're going to be clothed properly to spend eternity with Him, we not only put on Christ, but we take off the old man and we put on the new man that's being created in Christ, which means there's a change. We don't just go down into the water, receive forgiveness of our sins, and come back up out of the water and just go to walk in the life that we've always lived. God took care of it. I'm good. No. There's a change in our lives. He said, look at what you used to do. You used to be adulterous. You used to use foul language. You used to lie. You used to hate. You used to steal. You turn away from those things, and you are being recreated. Just like Adam was created from the dust of the ground, he went from something... Uh, over here that is just dirt to a brand new creature. There is no semblance to them. Here's a pile of dirt and here's Adam. And everyone can see there's a huge difference. And they're saying, you are a new creation. You're putting on a new man. And there needs to be a difference. And that brings us to the last point. Revelation 19, verses 6-8. through We already read that. The wedding feast. The symbolism that a lot of this is coming from. He says, those that are there are clothed in fine linen. We are to put on fine linen. I'm not talking about the clothes that we dress right now. I don't think I could afford fine linen. I don't even really know what that is for me to put on. Maybe 100% cotton. But we don't have to know because it's always good when the Bible tells us exactly what it's talking about. Almost like it's that I'm thinking ahead and I know people are maybe going to have trouble with this. So back over in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8, when he said they were clothed with fine linen, we get this parenthetical statement at the end of verse 8. It says, For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We're to put on righteous deeds. It's not enough just to be clothed in Christ. It's not enough just to say, okay, I won't do the things that I used to do. We need to put on righteous deeds. We need to put on, uh, and we need to remember that what we are picturing here is a people that are standing before God and they are celebrating with God for eternity the life that they've lived, not because of who they are, because who He has made them. There was not a single point in man's history where they could look at their accomplishments and say, look at what I've done. God, and, and, and it be righteous, I should say, there are countless times in man's history where we can look at ourselves and say, look at what I've done and we're behind it. And every one of those times tends to be unfaithfulness to God. But man looking at, them, at their accomplishments, at the righteous things that they have done, and saying, look at what God has done in me. 
Look at where God has led me. He has taken me away from sin. He has changed my life. And He has strengthened me to do the righteous deeds that are going to lead other people to see this change in my life and have an opportunity to make a choice whether or not they'll follow or not. Over and over again, we need to remember the wedding feast pictured here is a picture of the bride of Christ and Christ joining together in that eternal celebration with God. And in this parable, we find those who are careless. We find those who are rebellious. We find those who are disobedient. But I want you to also read between the lines because that's what Jesus forces into your face because that's what they needed to hear. And that's oftentimes what we need to hear. But there's a third group, or a fourth group, I should say. There are those who were not careless with the invitation. There were those who did not rebel. And there were those who were not disobedient and put on the proper attire. There were those found at the wedding feast. And yes, they were undeserving to be there. But they were thankful. Thankful enough to be prepared and be ready for the King's feast. Brothers and sisters and friends, we are blessed. We are a blessed people. To have the invitation open to us and an invitation that we don't deserve. Are we going to be gracious? Are we going to look at God's kindness and His faithfulness and His patience? And are we going to allow that to motivate us to move in such a manner as to accept the invitation and to walk and live according to those who will be found faithful on the day of judgment? Will you accept the invitation? Will you make yourself ready for the feast? That's the question that I want to end with this, after, or this morning. Will you spurn God's invitation to come? It's easy for us to read this and to shake our fingers and, and nod our heads because of the life that those Israelites lived. But we find today through many passages, 1 Corinthians 10 is telling us their story is our story. And we fall into the same traps that they fall into. And the answer is never changed. It's Christ Jesus. And if we can assist you this morning in coming to Him, whether it be for the first time in repentance and in obedience to Him to be saved from your sins, or whether it be for coming to Him for the hundredth time, know that He is always going to be the solution. He is always going to be the answer. And we are always here to assist one another. Whatever we can do to help, won't you please let it be known as we stand and sing the song of invitation.